Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. There was a lawsuit made by a man against a Christian publishing company for $70 million. And the lawsuit was filed because of a Bible translation used the word homosexual to describe same-sex relations, relationships. And the man said it caused 20 years of distress, psychological pain and confusion, and he was seeking damages. Now, the lawsuit was dismissed, but it underlines a point that when you talk about the Bible and same-sex relationships, this may be the most controversial topic communicated from a pulpit because there's so much hurt, so much pain, that it makes even talking about something like this very difficult and something I don't take lightly, especially as a, uh, a, a straight married man with three kids. Um, but it's such an important topic for us in, in 2022 on so many levels. And it's my desire that we would be a community faithful to God's word. And, and we want to be, as an eldership, helpful to you. And so we're going to do part two of last week's uh, reply all question, is your church affirming? And practically, that, that means that we are going to skip uh, the talk on science and the Bible. But I have a book recommendation for you, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. And he's got a couple uh, chapters on there where, uh, about creation and other places where it appears as though uh, the Bible and scientific evidence is in conflict. If you missed last week, um, it would have been helpful for you to have heard it. Uh, and I say that because we're going to build upon what I said last week. Um, and uh, so if, if you do me a favor and go back and, and look at that talk, that would be great if you didn't hear that talk. So number one, go back and look in that, that, listen to that talk. Number two, just kind of give me the benefit of the doubt if you have a question, because a lot of what I'm going to say may depend upon that. But what we did in a nutshell is that we looked at some of the influences uh, on our thinking and our feelings about this issue. And one of which is something called express individualism that's been, um, it's been something we've been sewing into for three or 400 years, kind of a slow drip. And there was a book recommendation on that. And then the other thing that's probably more conscious uh, of us that we know is this culture war, that you and I are victims of a culture war of the past 50 years. Um, and, uh, and, and so we have, at a, we have a gut instinct about how we feel about this issue that comes from two different lenses. One is in the, in the 1960s into the 70s, uh, gay activists came at this from an issue. This is an issue of injustice. Uh, we are promised equal rights and we don't have equal rights. This was an issue of injustice. And then there's another group uh, called the Moral Majority led by a guy named Jerry Falwell. And that issue, that issue was fought uh, through the lens of immorality. And this has been going on for the past 50 years. And whether you realize it or not, you have been highly influenced by this cultural war. And you, you view that you more than likely view this topic through one of those lens. And you have a gut instinct about what you think is right or wrong coming from one of those angles. But as followers of Christ, we have to do better than gut instinct. We have to find out what the Bible says. I have this quote from Bill Maher, he said, to most Christians, the Bible is like a software license. Nobody actually reads it. They just scroll to the bottom and click, I agree. Ha ha ha, nervous laughter. You know, it's like, oh, is that wrong? Am I not supposed to do that? Man, we want you to know what the scripture says. I mean, we, we love that people 
would agree, but what's going to happen is someone's going to come alongside, whether it's a college professor or whatever, and going to ask a simple question, and you're not going to have an answer. And you think, oh, my thing is just to like amen at the service. My thing was just to click I agree. But we want you to know what the Bible has to say. And as you do, you're going to find that's way better than you think it is. So we just walk through the Bible. We walk through uh, Genesis 2 and a little, dabbled a little bit in Leviticus and, and uh, some in Romans 1 and got behind some of the Greek words and some of the Hebrew words and some of the meaning. And, and, and through it all, um, the very clear definition of marriage that we see in Genesis that's affirmed by uh, the New Testament writers, and including Jesus himself, that, that marriage is between one man, one woman for one life. This is called the historic view because every single denomination, whether it's Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, and the 50,000 Protestant denominations have all held to this for over 1,900 years. And uh, those who would now hold the progressive view through the challenge flag in the 1960s, and that, that challenge has intensified um, in the last 50 years. But like I said, if you take the Bible seriously, and this is weighty to you, you'll understand that these, um, these arguments from the progressive view actually aren't that convincing from a biblical perspective. And I gave some recommendations if you want to dive more into what the Bible actually says. There's two books that I uh, recommended that I would recommend. Again, the first one is The People to Be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. He's got really good, he's a scholar, but uh, he said he, may, he set out to spend as much time sitting across the table listening to people as he did studying Greek and Hebrew words. And so his scholarship is really good and his tone is really good. If you're just going to read one book, I would encourage you to read that one. Uh, the second book is What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? He spent all of his time with books and not as much with people. So his tone isn't as good, but his scholarship is outstanding. Uh, by the way, if you just read the book recommendations between last week and this week, I'm, I feel like I've done my job. And so, like, I would encourage you to read these books. They're very helpful, gave me clarity, and I hope they give you clarity. But getting the theology right, the vertical thoughts on God, is only half of it. We have to get our heart right toward people, the horizontal application of our theology uh, to get to get one right at the expense of the other uh, isn't good. It's not. It's not ultimately what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus was simultaneously, he, had a, he, had, he, he was a person that had the highest standards. He, he was the one who said, like, man, I, you, you've heard it said adultery is bad, but I say even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've, you've, you've committed the sin. So he had the highest standard, higher than Leviticus, higher than Paul, higher, highest sexual ethic ever. And then when we, when we think about people who really are convinced about what they think and they have very strict standards, and we think about how they relate to us, we don't like them very much. But Jesus, man, he went and he healed people and he found people uh, bound up in sin and he freed them. You see, here's the thing about Jesus. He is a paradox, meaning he's absolutely bewildering. And so when we see, oh, Jesus, he's a really nice and loving. And so we think, well, he couldn't possibly have a high standard because everybody I know who has a high standard isn't loving like this. Or on the other side of it, we're like, oh my gosh, he has a high standard. And so we got to like really bring truth and hard edges. And, you know, like compassion is secondary because everyone that I know, you know, to everyone that I know that's kind of compassionate is soft on the issues. So obviously you got to be this way. But Jesus is totally, see how bewildered I am? See, Jesus is totally bewildering <laughs> because he's, he's, he's like no other. He is holy, he is holy, he's like no other. 
But we need to meet this Jesus. We need to fall in love with just Jesus, this person of conviction as well as compassion. 100% grace, 100% truth. And so today, so that's, that we went through that. So today, I just want to answer five common questions that I hear on this. So like when you walk out and, and people, you know, if people find out what you believe, they're going to they're gonna ask you probably one of these five. And there's a few questions that people ask that I may try to uh, weave in there as, as we go along. But here they are. Not much, not a big deal, not consistent, not fair. Love is love. So we're going to go through those. Uh, and it's so important that we think deeply about this because there are some people in, in cult, culture is going to come at you and they're going to demand that you accept everything they say. And then there are going to be some people who out of fear just dismiss it all. But Christians uh, are called to discern. And, and I want to help us to discern not just what the Bible says, but how to interact with culture. OK, so not much. One objection is the claim that the Bible hardly says anything about homosexuality. Um, just to frame that, there are five major sections that directly uh, talk about uh, same-sex acts. And, but just to be clear, the Bible does talk about, in the New Testament and Jesus in particular, talk a lot about marriage and they talk about sexual immorality, which is a junk drawer word that says anything that is not sex between a man and a woman in the, co- in the, the covenant of marriage is out, out of bounds, which would include uh, same-sex acts. And so when the Bible says sexual immorality, it's including all of that. But anyway, so what they say is like, hey, man, the Bible is a really big, thick book. There's a lot in there about God's love, his overarching plan to redeem and rescue people, which we would say, amen. There's just a few, you know, five verse, five sections that speak directly against us. Are we making a mountain out of a molehill? Uh, I would say that is a great, great question that has a very, very simple answer. And here it is. The reason the Bible says relatively uh, a little bit about homosexuality was that it was relatively speaking an uncontroversial sin to ancient Jews and Christians. Uh, there's, there's no evidence supporting uh, that Judaism or Christianity supported any expression of same-sex relationships. In fact, even a revisionist or progressive view would say that the Bible would admit that the Bible doesn't say anything positive about it. It doesn't say anything affirming about that. And so, but the, the argument is like, well, where's the volume? Uh, shouldn't there be a volume of verses if the Bible was so against it? Like I said, the reason why there's not a volume of verses because it was just assumed that people knew that this was wrong. It wasn't a live issue like it was today. Here's something that'll help you. The Bible was written for you, but the Bible wasn't written to you. Meaning like the questions that you have, the Bible um, isn't necessarily going to answer 21st century American. It's going to answer the questions that were live. So you're not going to read, you're not going to read in the Bible anything about DNA se- sequencing. Like they just weren't asking those questions. Um, and they weren't asking this question because it wasn't a live issue. For example, let me give you an analogy. If you were to go on our database and you were to scroll through every sermon I've ever preached, you will, you will not find one sermon where I uh, titled Murder is Bad. I've never, can you believe that? I've never taught you guys that murder is wrong. It's not a live issue. Everybody agrees that it's wrong. It wasn't a lie. I, I haven't taught about lying actually since 2013. I did a series called Six and Stones, uh, Why Words Really Do Hurt Us. And, and I, 
actually didn't say that lying was bad. I, I talked about the dangers of not being a, a truthful person, about being transparent, open, and honest, and a person of integrity. I, th I think murder is bad, just for the record, and I think lying is bad. But it wasn't a live issue. Now, what, what, now what you'll hear messages like this. You'll hear a message about me talk about the dangers of consumerism, the dangers of individualism, the dangers of political idolatry, uh, racism, um, among other things, the importance of community, because those are live issues for us. So the Bible, you'll, you'll, you'll read through the prophets, and they're going to rail against... Um, uh, they're going to they're gonna rail against um, uh, like uh, social and economic injustice. They're going to talk about idolatry in general, not, not honoring the Lord God. They're going to talk, uh, uh, they're going to rail against religious hypocrisy because those were the live issues of the day. So the, the simple answer is just wasn't a live issue for Jesus because it was obvious to everyone. Secondly, what's the big deal? It reminds me of that uh, Thomas Jefferson quote, if it neither picks my pocket or breaks my leg, I just don't care. Uh, why is this such a big deal? Who cares what people do in their bedroom? You know, can't we just agree to disagree? We disagree on baptism. We disagree. You know, some people have LED walls. Some people like candles. What's the big deal? Can't we just be different? Well, first of all, it, it's really, the reason why it's a big deal is anytime that we um, say something is good that God says is wrong as clearly as the Bible says this is not his design for marriage. This is not his design for human flourishing. Anytime we say, no, I disagree. I think human flourishing can happen this way. The reason why this is a big deal is that if we say you can do what you want, we are keeping people from experiencing the life they can find in Jesus. So what's going, what I'm not concerned about is, uh, I'm not concerned about sexual ethics. I'm not as concerned about um, you know, protecting the nuclear family. Those things are not ultimate, but Jesus is ultimate. And this is what Jesus has, has said and put forth so clearly in the scriptures. And anytime we say, you know what, God, I'm not sure you know what you're talking about. We're keeping people from experiencing that life in Christ. In Revelation um, 2.19, um, and this is so important because we're going to go out there, we're going to face pressure. And it, and it is important that we bend. And what I mean by bend is that we learn how to be compassionate. Man, that's so, so important. But we never break because our fear of the Lord is greater than our fear of man. And we believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the ultimate path to human flourishing. But in Romans 2.19, um, Jesus says to this is church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love, your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance, and I know the latter will exceed the first. So Jesus is coming to this church and saying, man, well done on like loving people, and you're out there serving the community. Every time I show up to one of your services, like people are always greeting me and very welcoming, very accepting. This is well done, good job, way to go, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel figuratively speaking, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Aren't we just supposed just to love people and let God do what God does? Sometimes, sometimes, when you, when you, trust in what God says, uh, you'll have to, at some level, communicate Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. 
Now, when you're sitting down with someone, I don't recommend that you say, hey, you're a liar. But I guarantee you, if you are a faithful Christian, you will have to say that in what you believe. And you'll have, a, you'll have a choice to make, is do I think God is the ultimate path to life, or do I think other people have a point? And um, it's just something you're going to have to wrestle with. But this is something that God takes seriously. Not consistent. No, this is, a, this is one I think we should hear. What about you know, other church issues? What about racism, greed, gluttony, gossip, other infidelity? This is an outstanding challenge uh, for our church. And I think one of the reasons why our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters are so important is they will help lead us to be less compromised. And the reality is, is like, man, when they look at the church, they're like, man, you guys are not dealing with your sin. I mean, I, I see greed. I see, you know, there's infidelity. You know, people make up their own rules about divorce. They... They just, people, I just see people doing what they want to do, living the life they want to live. Why are you picking on this? And I say, Jubilee Church, let's receive that and say, you know what? I want to humble myself and I, and I want to deal with the stuff in my life. And our commitment to each other is to help one another deal with the stuff in our life. That we should take this critique uh, humbly. Um, but Logically, it's not just because um, we're light on something that is wrong doesn't mean that we should be light on something else is wrong. What we should do is realize that, we, that all have fallen short and that we should repent and we should lead others to repentance, knowing that that is the pathway to ultimate life and reality and human flourishing is with him. Uh, fourth one is not fair. This doesn't seem fair. I mean, you know... People can't choose, people don't choose their temptation. Uh, we choose how we respond to that temptation. And I, and I know there's a lot of um, uh, debate out there. This is what the American, the APA says. There's no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no finding have emerged that permits scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation, and I believe that that's true. Every gay person I know would say their attraction is not their choice. Statistically, 14% of women will at some point in their life experience same-sex attraction. 1% of women uh, will exclusively experience same-sex attraction. Um, Seven percent of men will, at some point in their life, experience same-sex attraction. Two percent of men will exclusively experience same-sex attraction. Um, I, I don't think they choose. In fact, some of the some some people I I know who would have no tension over engaging uh, same-sex acts uh, would say, "I don't want to be gay." I wish I wasn't. I don't think this is something um, people choose, which number one, I think the church should be incredibly compassionate um, toward anyone um, who would experience temptation. Um, I mean, you know what the worst thing to do with someone who experiences temptation? 
is you leave them alone. And the church has gone the wrong way on this historically when reality they need people to come alongside them and help them and encourage them and give them a place of community to lead them to Jesus. But um, just because the, the thing here, and this is why I think it's, it's I think that our same-sex brothers and sisters are so helpful to us, is that the call for all of us is to, to come and die. The, the call for all of us is to pick up our cross and follow him. Nobody gets to come to Jesus on their terms. And what's so unfortunate is that our same-sex brothers and sisters come in our community and they, and they, see, people, they see people following Jesus on their terms. Now, it's not life-giving, it's not fulfilling, but they see that. And they're like, well, why, 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 why does this happen? This doesn't seem fair. Well, man, I think it's a challenge for us uh, to learn and, and to understand, no, God has called me to give up something that I give up something so that, that I can experience something better. See, when Jesus tells you to leave something, I don't care what it is, when he tells you to leave something, he's always inviting you into something better. And by faith, we believe that. He says this to his disciples in Mark 10, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? So again, Economic injustice was a big deal. And, and like, man, to, be, to have wealth and money more than a day's wage was like, man, that is amazing. And the disciples were amazed as, as words, like how difficult it will be to, in, to have wealth for those who enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said, who can be saved Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And then Peter realizes that, man, God's calling all of us to give up big things. And, he, and that's when he says, see, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. It won't be easy. And in this age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Man, God, there, you can't. I mean, we do sacrifice, but in a sense, we don't sacrifice because every time God calls us from something, he always calls us something to the to something is always, always better. So when we look at this and say it's not fair, God, it, whatever someone gives up that seems more than someone else, God has something better for them in store. And whoever is first here will be last there and whoever is last here will be first there. It's God's it's terrible math, but it's God's the way God does it. Uh, lastly, love is love. Um, you'll hear this. In fact, I got a great book recommendation uh, for you by Rebecca McLaughlin uh, on the secular creed in general. And she's great and, and talks about how um, the, the secular creed that you'll see in people's lawns, how the reality is, is this all comes from God. It all comes from Christianity, these, these statements, all except um, this one which I'll, I'll explain. Uh, I first want to say that, that no one believes that love is love. That, simp that statement just isn't true. I mean, if someone wanted to pull the, the love is love card and date a sibling, we'd say, no, that's not love. That's incest. And we, not being the church, but culture would say that. If someone said love is love, um, 
pull the love is love card with an animal, we'd say, no, that's not love. That's, that is bestiality. If someone uh, wants to say, hey, you know, pull the love is love card with a minor, we'd say, no, 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 that's not love. Uh, that's pedophilia. Our whole culture does not actually mean that love is love. That love should have no boundaries around it. Christianity is not exclusive when it puts fences around sexuality. Every person on the planet believes that there, you, there should be restraint to sexual desire. Everybody believes that. No one actually believes that. Um, everyone knows. I mean, t- for me to love my wife better, I, you have to give, give up loving someone else in order to love. It's the way we all Function. Here's what I think they're saying, though. Love is God. Love is tolerance. Love is sex. Love is enough. Love is God. What they're saying is that love is the highest and the most. Like love is the pinnacle of existence. Uh, romantic love, I should say, is the pinnacle of existence. We believe something different. We don't believe that love is external to God. You know, like something he's really good at. Like God's really good at tennis and he's really good at loving people. And like he's just something he's really good at. We don't think it's just something that's external to him. We believe it's part of his very essence, that God is love. It is his, he is this in essence. But what does this mean? Well, at one level, it does mean like nobody has loved the way God has loved. It, it believes, it, it means what we think it means. But to assume, and this is a danger, that God automatically endorses our understanding of love is to invert God is love to love is God. But this is how God has defined love in 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another. Describe it, I should say, not define it. Beloved, let us love one another, for, God is, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, and that's why it's really important to not take your definition of love and import it to God. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this love, not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So here's the picture of God's love. And what's interesting is what's at the center of God's love is not Cupid, it's not a cloud, but it's a cross. It's sacrificial. Number one, this should absolutely humble us. Because, you know, maybe by a culture definition, I might think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at, Loving, you know, I can, I can love the way people love other people. But if the, if the, if the definition of love is, is the cross, I'm not, I'm not very good at it. I'm not sacrificing. I, I prefer me over others. I'm not very good at it. He's, his love is other. His love is is ultimate. It is a holy love. It is a, not a self-serving love, but a self-sacrificing love. The other thing I think they mean is love is tolerance. Now, um, I won't belabor this, but basically the, the definition, of, of, there's an old tolerance and a new tolerance. An old tolerance would, would say, hey, if someone disagrees with you, uh, we're all pursuing the truth together. And so let's be free uh, and open with our ideas and let's you know, be nice to each other when we disagree, but, we're, you know, but there's, there's definitely a truth that we're all trying to seek and try to understand, but let's give each other um, uh, space to, to believe what they believe. The new definition is that in order, in order f- 
for you to love me, you have to accept my view as being true. You can be true, and you can be true, and you can be true, and I can be, there isn't an exclusive truth. And this is told um, commonly with this parable of an elephant, you know, there's five blind men, and they all, they're all blind, and they, they've got their hand on a different piece of the elephant. So one guy has his hand on the leg, and he's like, oh, uh, this is a tree. Another guy has his hand on the side of the elephant, says, no, 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 you're wrong, it's not a tree, it's the side of a building. And another guy has his hand on the tusk. He's like, no, 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 it's not a tree, it's not a building, it's a sword. Another guy has his hand on the, the uh, trunk. And uh, he's like, no, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. It is a, you know, it's a snake, that's what it is. And, and basically, the, the point of the story, as you can tell, is that everybody has a piece, a hand on a piece of reality. If they could all just stop telling each other that they're wrong and see that they all have a piece of the truth and together they have all of the truth. And so we shouldn't exclude other people because everybody has their hand on a piece of reality, although they can't see all of what reality is. And this sounds, you know, really uh, convincing until you think about the characters in the story. And the characters in the story, five of them are blind. They're all blind except the person telling the story. In other words, the person telling the story is saying, you are all blind and I can see truth. In other words, the only way to know that all paths lead to God is to be God, is to have the perspective of God. So one state, one, somebody might say, hey, I know who is God and it's not what you believe. That sounds arrogant. Until you, believe the per, until you hear the person say, I, just, I am God and I can see all of reality. Here's the point everybody's, and this is a circular argument, everybody's belief is by definition exclusive. We're all excluding each other. So if you believe that, hey, we should, every religion is valid, you exclude Islam, you exclude Judaism, you exclude Christianity. You, everybody's belief is exclusive. The question is, which exclusive belief is the most loving? And at the center of Christianity, you have a man dying for his enemies. And when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I, I'm disappointed that we as, we as the Big C Church have used that to say we're right and everybody else is wrong. The way that Jesus communicated that was everybody was trying, I'm going to make a way where there is no way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the, you don't have peace right now? You don't have peace? I can give you a peace that passes all understanding. Meaning like when everyone else doesn't have peace, I can give you peace. When everyone else is in the valley of the shadow of death and you feel despairing of life, I will show you the way to green pastures and to still waters. When, when your strength is, is removed from you and you feel like giving up, I will be the one will, will cause you to mount up like an eagle and you will soar. I will provide a way where there is no way. This statement by Jesus was not meant to exclude people, but paradoxically to include people. 
So our thing is like, hey, come be like us. Our thing is like, hey, there's room at the cross. Everyone come and follow Jesus. Everyone, gay, straight, everyone in the continuum, all can follow Jesus. He has made a way where there is no way. So if you are depressed, if you're discouraged, if you're despondent, if you don't know what to do, Jesus is the way. If you're confused about life, he is the truth. If you want more than what you're experiencing right now, he is the life. He has burst through that thing that keeps us from experiencing what I think our hearts really want to experience. Love is sex is another thing you might hear. This is our culture wrongly sees that sex is necessary for fulfillment as a means of, 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 of personal salvation. Um, as the historian Carl Truman observes, um, which I, I believe I recommended this book last week too, uh, he says this, nobody needs to be told that the, the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin is a comedy. The very idea of someone reaching the age 40 with no experience of sexual intercourse is inherently comic, is inherently comical, I think I should say, because of the value society now places on sex. To be sexually inactive in the eyes of culture is to be a less than whole person, to be obviously unfulfilled or weird. The problem is this, Jesus was a 40-year-old virgin, virgin, or at least a 33-year-old one, I should say. And this may sound like a paradox, but the person who lived the ultimate life, the best life ever, never had sex. Our culture believes, if not insists, that human flourishing is synonymous, synonymous with sexual fulfillment. The fulfilled life is a sexually fulfilled life. The ultimate love is found in a romantic relationship. Now, interesting enough, the, the ancients didn't believe this. They believed that the ultimate relationship was friendship. They didn't believe it was. Um, so this isn't the way society has always been, which is crazy to you and I because we are bombarded by the ads, sitcoms, movies, you know, TV always present. They always pre present things like virginity, modesty, chastity, monogamy as oppressive and dehumanizing. They are mocked. The anxious believe, though, that the ultimate, the pinnacle relationship was not sexual and romantic. It was friendship. And I just would love for us at Jubilee Church to think about that. that what would it be like if we held, like, hey, man, the ultimate relationship is not necessarily found in a marriage, but it's found in, in friendship. Now, most of us will still get married statistically, but it's found in, it's found in friendship. And you can, you can have a deep, meaningful experience and, and you can experience family, you can f experience intimacy. Um, Jesus said this in John 15, greater love has no one than this. So he's defining what the greatest love is, that someone lays down his life for his friends. That is the greatest form of love. The ultimate expression of love is not sexual, it's sacrificial, because Jesus said so. Finally, I think they're saying that love is enough. All, love is all you need to justify marriage. That's all you need is love. Our culture today, marriage is primarily seen as an opportunity to celebrate deeply fulfilling romantic relation, feelings between two consenting adults. So marriage is um, deep, are two consenting adults and they hold a deep romantic feelings for one another. It doesn't really matter who these people are. What matters is they have deep romantic feelings for one another. 
if marriage is about mutual romantic fulfillment, I think um, this all makes sense. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense to keep same-sex couples from this if all marriage is is a celebration of deep romantic feelings for each other. Um, however, as Christians, we understand um, that marriage means more than this. Again, this is why it's so important that we're not just, we scroll down to the bottom and say, I agree, that we understand what, what God's trying to communicate to us. Marriage is not an end in, end in itself. It is an icon. It is a window. It is a signpost. Marriage is not about two people making each other happy and meeting their sexual and relational needs. It's not less than that. But it's way, way more than that. It's meant to be a little model of Jesus and his church. If you've ever built like a little model airplane, you know that the, the pieces match up with the real thing. So, you know, it has wheels, it has seats, it has um, a cockpit, um, it, has, it may have propellers, has a tail. And the pieces of the Christian marriage match up with Jesus' love for the church. The, the replica models the real thing. It matches up. The pieces match up. Jesus' love is faithful and forever. So death do us part. So till death do us part. Jesus' love is life-giving and creative. So be fruitful and multiply. Jesus' love is sacrificial. So in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want. Jesus is different from us. He loves across difference. He is other. He is like no one on the planet. Therefore, we love across difference, male and female. So our marriages are like a little model plane. It just doesn't fly. It's just a replica. It, it never really gets off the ground. And sometimes we can be disappointed or frustrated in marriage because it doesn't reach the heights that we think that it should or gets promised in the movies. So think about like Aladdin and Jasmine. I'm sure everyone here has seen some version of that movie. Here you've got this unlikely pair that the world is trying to keep from each other, right? And uh, they get together on this magic carpet flying around and they're singing a whole new world. As if their love for each other is going to create a whole new world. Not only for them, but for everyone around them. Evil will eventually get cast out and love will prevail. Their love, their marriage will create a whole new world. Now, this is fantasy, this is a movie. We know this could never happen. But we want it to happen. We wish it could happen. And to be honest, with, be honest with you, we long for it to happen. Well, I've got good news for you. In Jesus, it will happen. The marriage of Jesus Christ to his church will literally create a whole new world. Will there be no death, no tears, no sadness? Everything sad will become untrue. He will lead you into life everlasting. He is the ultimate. This is what he's doing on our. So at a human level in marriage, we got this little toy and maybe we're a little bit frustrated. It doesn't fly. I promise you his will. And we look at these uh, sexual boundaries keeping us from what we believe to be ultimate, but it's just 
a replica. We fail to see something much bigger, much brighter, much more beautiful. Uh, And it's this river of God's passionate love for us that started in Genesis. It began to swell in the prophets. Its banks overflowed in the gospels. And it comes to a mighty flood in Revelation when it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. This is the moment of ecstasy to which every Christian is called and will receive. And by his spirit, we have received a down payment on this. Jesus, just like Jesus is the, the once and for all sacrificial lamb putting an end to all sacrifices, he is the bridegroom to put an end for the need for all human romance. That's why he says there won't be marriage anymore in heaven, not because marriage isn't good, it's because We don't need the replica anymore if we have the real thing in Christ. And that is something everybody is invited to. Man, woman, boy, child, black, white, gay, straight, and everyone on the continuum. He is calling people to come sit at my table. I want to create for you a new world. And the key for all of that, for us, for everyone, for everyone, for everyone, for everyone, the key to that is to repent. Say, God, I I got it wrong. I I believe something that wasn't true. I've been living something that's not true. And he wants to call you to repentance. Paul Peter says, repent, that times of refreshing will come. He wants to bring you peace where you don't have peace. He wants to bring you joy where you don't have joy. He wants to bring you hope where you don't have hope. Wherever you're at today, he wants to call you into the ultimate, ultimate life. When we stand... Jesus, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the compassion and your example. God, ultimately, though, we thank you for your cross that makes it possible for all of us to experience you. We've all fallen short. No one is straight. We're all crooked and bent. But it's because of your cross because of you, Jesus. It's because you poured out a love that is totally other that we can experience a life like no other. 